The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for Thou art with me. Thy rod and Thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now those are among, of course, one of the most well-known passages in all of Scripture. And I quoted Psalm 23, as many of you recognized, in the language of good King James. Uh, Most of us, for good reasons, read and study more modern translations of Psalm 23, but I think I could argue that none of them have quite the same rhetorical power, especially in Psalm 23, as the authorized version. Uh, Its words, its phrases, its cadence are uh, deeply embedded in the minds and hearts of of many people. Uh, Let me tell you how I learned that. I learned that actually on a hill, on one of those rolling hills near the top of one of them in the Millersville Mennonite Cemetery. Uh, I was there for a graveside service that followed the first funeral that I ever conducted, uh, either here or actually anywhere, and it was a funeral for a newborn baby. Uh, Some of you were there, maybe you you remember it, it was uh, a long time ago. Uh, The parents of this baby were both uh, in their late teens. They'd both graduated from high school, but hadn't gotten much further than that. And during the pregnancy, the relationship fell apart. Uh, The baby was born uh, with some very severe birth defects and didn't live longer than a week. He had come home from the hospital and uh, died there in his home. Uh, I went over to the house shortly after uh, the baby died, and I sat there in the living room with this family as they wept over this baby. This mother and her parents were there. Uh, in a little bit, they, uh, they, they had called and arrived. They arrived, the, the, the grandparents, uh, uh, the, the, son, the father of the baby's parents, they came. The father of the baby was at a construction site working somewhere. He, he came and wept over the baby. The worst moment of that morning was when the funeral director came and they, they handed their baby over to him to take the baby to the funeral home for uh, preparations. Uh, the next day, uh, the mother and I and her parents went to the funeral home. I don't do that very often, but this is my first funeral, so I went with them to the funeral home. We made plans uh, for the service, and as we were leaving, uh, the, the, making arrangements, the baby's grandmother, she turned to me and she said, Thank you so much for coming. She said, we've never done this before, and it's such a help to have you here. I didn't say it, but I thought to myself, well, I've never done this before either. But here we are. Uh, We gathered at the church. The mourner sat down here in this room, and it was odd. You Remember, the relationship that had produced this baby had broken apart, had fallen apart, and uh, the mother of the baby and her parents and their relatives and friends sat on one side, and the father of the baby and his parents and relatives sat on the other. It was a twisted wedding. It was just a weird situation. After the funeral, we went to the cemetery, 
And as the graveside service ended, I, I, read, I read Psalm 23. I, I still do. Uh, but I had my NIV with me at the cemetery there. And as I was reading from that translation, I looked up and I saw the lips moving of about a dozen people that were around. There was a lot of people there. And I saw people were, were reading along with me or quoting along with me as I was quoting, uh, reading Psalm 23, except they weren't quoting the NIV. They were quoting the King James. Maketh me, he anointeth my head. It occurred to me then as I was standing there watching them that uh, in the midst of grief and shock and despair, people find comfort, they find hope in old paths. They want to sing old songs. They want to go to familiar places. They read lines again that they know by heart. It's the familiar phrases and sentences and stories and melodies and images that, that seem to bring them the most comfort during that time. I imagine that's how God's people in the Old Testament felt at various times in, in, in the Bible called Hebrews or Israelites or Jews. I imagine that's how they felt when they were exiled from the land, the land that God had promised them. They had possession of it for a thousand years, and after a thousand years, they lost the land. They had plenty of warning that this was going to happen. In 1500 B.C. or or so, Moses had led them to the edge of the land. He had been God's instrument to provide them with the covenant. And that covenant was a description of how they were supposed to live out their faith in God. The, the covenant did not make them God's people. It was an expression of their confidence in Him, their trust in Him. And it had all kinds of stipulations, uh, dietary requirements and legal codes and worship practices. And there was a warning there too. If the people did not fulfill these stipulations, they would not cease to be God's people. They're still God's people, but they would lose their land. And that's what happened. They saw the land destroyed. They saw the temple torn down. They saw their city burned. And they saw their children carried off into slavery. And those are the circumstances in which people sing familiar songs and uh, retell well-known stories. It's in that context that we have come to have two volumes set in our Bibles that we call First and Second Samuel. Uh, today we're going to begin walking through this book, these two books together. And as we go, it's going to be our custom. We're going to go chapter by chapter, scene by scene. My expectation is that we will finish sometime in the spring of 2018. Now don't hold me to that. So if you're making plans based on when we finish, just hold off. We'll see how it goes. But it's going to take us a while. These are long books. We're going to take long sections at a time, but it's, it's long. It's a book you know really well. It has a lot of familiar names in it. Hannah, Samuel, Saul, David, Goliath, Jonathan, Absalom, Bathsheba. You know, we know more about David and his life than any other character in the Bible except for the Lord Jesus. And you know most of his life story. You know most of the scenes. I expect over the next several months you may not learn anything new uh, on the detail end about David. But I'm, uh, what I hope to show you is how these individual stories, and this is actually how they hit us, how they fit into the overall context of David's story and the story of God's people. 
Now, as is usual, when we start a new book of the Bible, we're going to spend some time today orienting ourselves to the text. Uh, This is the introduction. We're not going to look at any one passage this morning in detail. This is going to feel more like a Bible lecture than a sermon. Um, If you're visiting today, this is not normal. It's not normally what we do. Uh, But if you want to follow along, I would like you to take the note sheet that's in your Bible. It's green. It looks something like this. On one side, you'll find kind of a basic outline of what we're going to talk about. And the other side, you'll see what looks familiar, perhaps a chart of the outline of the books. So uh, you might want to set that before you as we go through this. Let's start by talking about some of the basic facts. All right. Who wrote The book of Samuel. Well, like all of the books in the Old Testament history section of the Bible, uh, Samuel is an anonymous book. No author is identified in the text. Uh, His name comes from the its name comes from the first main character, um, uh, Samuel, and he probably the tradition says that he wrote the first half, and he probably did. That's probably true. But he died at the end of the first half, which means that he could not possibly have written the second half. Just a little deduction. I don't want to go too fast, but that's kind of reasonable, I think. Uh, Jewish tradition says that the second half was written by Nathan the prophet, or maybe another prophet called Gad, or maybe Gad's son. That's some idea. It has to be, though, someone who had access to the court records. They write a lot about what's happening on the inside of the court. Um, look at 2 Samuel 1.17. I wrote it down there for you. There's this reference to this other book that we don't have. David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan. We'll talk about the context of that later. And he ordered that the people of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. There's a tune, I think, probably the lament of the bow. And here's a clue for you. It is written in the book of Jashar. Well, where's the book of Jashar? I have no idea where the book of Jashar is. But the author of Samuel had access to the book of Jashar so he could quote this poem. Uh, The book of Chronicles, which tells uh, overlapping history a lot with with Samuel, actually makes reference to a number of books that the author of Chronicles, he's properly called the Chronicler, the Chronicler uh, used to write his book. Listen to the four. He He mentions four of them. The court records of King David the records of Samuel the seer, the records of Nathan the prophet, and the records of Gad the seer. Seer, of course, is another word for prophet. So they had sources, and they had to have access to these sources. I wonder, when he talks about the records of Samuel the seer, I wonder if he's not actually talking about 1 and 2 Samuel. Maybe. I don't know. Now, the book is anonymous, and because the book is anonymous, it's not easy to give it a date either. It probably comes to us in the final form that it's in, probably around the 500s B.C., probably, after the exile. It's entirely possible to believe that most of it it was as it is now in our Bibles much earlier than that. Now, think with me for a minute about the form of the text, the form in which we have the text. We have in our Bibles two books, first and second Samuel. Um, They were originally one book. It was originally one book, uh, but when they translated Hebrew into Greek, it got really long. The reason is because Hebrew books uh, don't have vowels in them. It's just consonants. So even today, if you go to Israel and you buy the Jerusalem Post and you buy the Hebrew edition, it will not have any vowels in it. Hebrew Bibles that are printed for use in synagogues don't have vowels. Now, Hebrew Bibles 
for Christian pastors. I have a copy of the Hebrew Bible that has little points in it that are supposed to indicate what vowels are like. But when you would read this, an, an educated Jewish reader would be able to read just the consonants. Now, when you translate into Greek, you've got to put the vowels in. And what happens if you add vowels? The text gets really long. Words are a lot longer. So they took Samuel when they translated into Greek and put it into two volumes. This is originally just one book. So I'll most of the time probably be talking about the book of Samuel, the book of Samuel, the one, one book. Uh, now, before it comes to us in the version that we have, it had been collected by some Greek-speaking Jews, and it was one, First uh, and Second Samuel were two volumes in a four-volume set, the Greek-speaking Jews. This would have been the Bible that was uh, used by Paul, uh, was in, in four volumes called the Book of Kingdoms. First Kingdoms, Second Kingdoms, Third Kingdoms, and Fourth Kingdoms. It was our First Samuel, Second Samuel, First Kings, and Second Kings. So Samuel and Kings were together in one book called the Kingdoms. Now before that, if we take one step even further back in the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible, it was in a collection called the Former Prophets. The Hebrew Bible has, uh, is divided into three parts. There's the Torah, and then there's the Prophets, and then there is the Writings. And the prophets are divided into the former prophets and the latter prophets. The later prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, the the books we call prophets. The former prophets would have been books we usually call history. Uh, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, and Chronicles were in those books of former prophets. Why are they called prophets? We call them history. The Jews called them prophets. Well, the reason they call them prophets is because, yes, they tell a story, but they tell a story with a certain bent, a certain perspective. This is God's commentary on what happened. They're not stories just told to entertain you. They're stories to educate you, to inform you, to inspire you. They're prophetically told stories. Now, we should think about Samuel as it sits in that collection of books for just a minute. Um, There are seven novels in the Harry Potter series. There are seven books in the Chronicles of Narnia. Laura Ingalls Wilder wrote nine books in her Little House on the Prairie series. And all of those books, you can read all of them individually, but together they form a master story. Uh, Certain details take on more significance when you read the whole story. Samuel is one volume in a six-volume set. Now, before the book of Joshua, which is the first of those former prophets, before Joshua, we have the story of creation, we have the call of Abraham, we have the moving of his family into Egypt, we have their rescue by Moses in the Exodus, we have the giving of the law, and then they enter the, the land under Joshua, they're led by Joshua into the promised land, and at the end, Chronicles, the people are led out of the land into exile. So this is the story of their ownership of the possession of the land, how they got it and how they lost it. And and Samuel is in the middle of that collection. And Samuel's role in that collection is to tell us how the the tribes moved from, uh, well, a loose confederation to a kingdom. Actually, its main emphasis is to tell us how it moved from being a theocracy to a monarchy, how it moved from being a theocracy to a monarchy. Now, a theocracy 
is a realm in which God rules. God is the king. Um, During the time of Joshua and tournament of Judges, God is the king, and occasionally he raises up human rulers, uh, human deliverers, we call them judges, who deliver the people. They reign for a short amount of time. They're not hereditary. Uh, They come in frequently. uh, uh, But Samuel... Samuel's about how the people moved from this theocracy to a monarchy, to have a human king. Now, I didn't plan to say this this morning, but last night I read a very interesting article about the founding fathers and their relationship to the Bible, our founding fathers and their relationship to the Bible. And one of the things that our founding fathers used to do all the time is they would speak frequently about the Hebrew Republic the Hebrew Republic. John Adams said that the Bible is a a necessary foundation for any republic to survive. And what did he mean by that? Well, uh, it was uh, theologians would talk in that day about the Hebrew Republic. And the Hebrew Republic that they were referring to was the nation of Israel during the period of time of Joshua and Judges when there was no king. That's a great sermon to preach if you're trying to get a bunch of people to rebel against the king, right? (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. It's a great time when there was no king. I'm not sure that's the best reading of Joshua and Judges because there was no king, but it wasn't that sweet living either. Hmm. Well, how do we move from being a theocracy to being a monarchy? Now, understanding that may help us get a grasp on how Samuel or why Samuel starts the way that it does. The book of Samuel starts with a barren woman whose name is Hannah. It's an odd way to start this book, I think. This is the story of Israel's greatest dynasty, and it starts with the story of this this woman named Hannah. She's not royal. She was not related to David. Her husband is caring, but a bit clueless. I mean, he was proud of his bay and everything, but you know. Um, her Her spiritual leaders are crooked. Her husband's other wife is just a shrew, Hannah. But you don't have to read very far into the book of Samuel before you find out that Hannah is an exceptional woman. She's an exceptional woman. And she gives birth to an exceptional son whose name is Samuel, the man who anointed the first two kings. Is it okay that we have a king? The Israelites might ask, is it okay that we have a king? Yeah. Do you know where the king came from? Well, Samuel. And do you know where Samuel came from? Yeah, Hannah. Oh, Hannah's okay. Yeah. It's okay that we have a king. Look where, look where the king comes from. Actually, the book of Samuel begins and ends with a poem. Two songs. The beginning of Samuel, the first singer is a woman named Hannah. And the end is the king, David. Both sing songs. And the theme of their songs are kind of very similar. Uh, They both sing about how God remembers the lowly and exalts those who are often forgotten by others. God exalts the lowly and God reigns through his sovereign king. He does it in the life of a barren woman when he gives her a son. And he does it in the life of David when he calls him from the sheep, from herding sheep to become the king of Israel. It's too... Uh, wonderful bookends. A godly woman and a godly man, a godly but flawed man. And God moves the nation from theocracy to monarchy. 
Now, since Samuel is part of this history in the former prophets, we should expect that there would be parallels and and foreshadowing in all of these books. I want to be a better reader of the Bible, and I want you to be a better reader of the Bible. And one of the ways that you can be a better reader of the Bible is by start, start looking at and thinking about the parallels that God puts in his book. This is one of the ways that Old Testament and New Testament stories work. God foreshadows and parallels uh, all the way through. We're going to look at some more of them, but let me just mention some this morning. Uh, Do you remember uh, the refrain in the book of Judges is, there is no king in Israel, there is no king in Israel, there is no king in Israel. uh, But there were some judges, most of them were not honorable men. Uh, do you remember one? There was a man by the name of uh, Barak and a man by the name of Gideon, two men, and they're both afraid to lead. They're reluctant. They're cowardly. They don't want to go. They're hiding. What happens when we first meet Saul in the book of Samuel? What's his, he like? He's a coward who's hiding, who doesn't want to be king. Uh-oh. If you've read Joshua and you've read Judges, you read Samuel and you meet Saul and you think to yourself, this is not going to go well. After Gideon, there was a man named Jephthah. Jephthah was a, a mercenary. He was brash. He was called to go to battle and on his way to battle, he made this vow. He said, I will sacrifice to God the first thing that comes out of my house to greet me, I will give to God. This is the vow he made. I don't know, I think he thought it might have been a cow or a sheep or a goat or maybe his beloved dog. I don't know, coming out of the house to greet him. And instead, they didn't have beloved dogs. Uh, Instead, what comes out of the house, who comes out of the house but his daughter? He made a vow. His daughter has to die. That was so foolish. Later in his life, Saul makes a vow too. He's in the midst of battle. He makes a vow. His vow was about not eating. It was a foolish vow. And there was one person in the army who broke the vow. It was his son, Jonathan. And Saul is on the verge of killing his son, Jonathan. But the whole nation, they rise. The army says, don't, don't do it, don't do it. And they stop him. Foolish vows. Oh, Saul. Do you remember the first great failure in Joshua? first great failure in Joshua, in the book of Joshua, is when a man named Achan, who's part of the Israeli army, keeps for himself some of the things that were supposed to be devoted to God. They were supposed to be destroyed in honor of God, and he kept them for himself. Do you remember the first great failure of Saul as king? He was supposed to utterly destroy the Amalekites, but instead he kept some of the the, uh, uh, proceeds of war for himself. He, He kept them, and he didn't obey and didn't destroy them like he was supposed to. Oh, Saul. You see the parallelism here that's in these stories when you read from a broad perspective? Now, the greatest hero in the book of Judges, at least in terms of press clippings, is a man by the name of Samson. Samson and Samuel were both born to barren women. Samson started a war with the Philistines that Samuel ended. Samson was wayward and lacked self-control and led the nation astray. Samuel, in contrast, though, was faithful to God and led a great uh, revival among the people. David begins his life like Joshua and Caleb. He's a brave and, and mighty warrior. Oh, do you remember Othniel? It's a good name to know for Bible trivia, Othniel. 
Othniel was the first judge in the book of Judges. He does not get very much space. Here's how Othniel got his wife. He, uh, uh, Caleb uh, offered his daughter, Caleb, this prominent leader, offered his daughter in marriage to the man who, who uh, led this great military conquest, and Othniel did it. He, he, he went and fought the enemies, defeated them, and his reward was Caleb's daughter, this beautiful, honorable woman in the Old Testament. Her name was Aksa, which if you're looking for names for your baby, I don't recommend. So Aksa, that's how Othniel got his his. Bride. Do you remember how David got his bride? Uh, Saul, the king, uh, offered his bride as a reward to someone who would defeat the Philistines in a great battle, and David did, and he was able to marry uh, Saul's daughter. Wow. David's looking good. Samson. Let's go back to Samson for a minute. What was Samson's downfall? He saw a woman that he was out of bounds, he should not have been with, and he took her to himself. This is his downfall. What was David's downfall? He saw a woman who was not his, who should not, he should not have been with, and he took her to himself. And the rest of David's story is marked by murder and sexual assault and civil war, just like in the book of Judges. Now, we're thinking along these lines. I want you to uh, consider how the authors of the Bible consider Mo- compare Moses and Samuel. I have a, a long quote here I want to read from a, a professor by the name of Robert Bergen. He's a commentator. Moses is the first and greatest of all the prophets, and Samuel comes like Moses. Listen to this here. Uh, Both Samuel and Moses were raised in environments outside their own homes. Both received their initial revelations from God in solitude and the presence of a burning object with their name being mentioned twice by God at the beginning of the encounter. During that first encounter with the Lord, both were told of divine judgments that would come against the authority structures in which they were reared. Both were called prophets, and unlike any others in the Torah and former prophets, both were called faithful. Both spoke words of judgments against leaders who had abused the Israelites. Both personally killed one oppressor of Israelites and then went into a session of self-imposed exile. Both wrote down regulations that were deposited before the Lord. Both performed some priestly duties, yet neither was ever termed a priest. Both acted as judges and were responsible for major transitions in Israeli history. Both had two named sons, none of whom played significant roles in later history. At the Lord's direction, both anointed individuals who led Israel to fight against and defeat the inhabitants of Jerusalem, act in behalf of the Gibeonites, and conquer the Promised Land. So, we have Moses, we have Samuel... Is it okay that we have a king? Yeah, because Samuel is the one who anointed him, and Samuel is just like Moses. Now, while I'm at it, just one more here. There are ways in which, in the book of Samuel, the author of Samuel parallels um, David's life with the life of the nation of Israel. I have another list. As I mentioned things, maybe uh, memories will come to you here. The parallels, again, Bergen, the parallels between David's life and key aspects of the history of Israel are numerous and deliberate. Like Abraham and Isaac, Israel's founding patriarchs, David was a shepherd. Like Joseph, he received a promise during his youth that he would be the leader of his people. Like Joseph, he also served faithfully in a king's court. Like Moses in Israel in Egypt, youthful David defeated a seemingly invincible opponent. 
Like Israel, David had an extended experience in the wilderness that involved him moving from place to place. Like Israel, he fought and defeated the Amalekites during his time in the wilderness. Like Israel, David received prophetic blessings from an opponent during his wilderness experience. Like Israel, David re-entered the land but took control of it only gradually over a period of time. And on and on and on and on it goes. Why? Why did the author of Samuel do this? When in the course of your life, when you experience grief and loss, and you inevitably will, you will be comforted and helped by people who have been there already. Uh, who, have, who have made it out. They've been through what you've been through and they made it out. You'll be comforted by those who know what it's like to survive cancer or to endure widowhood or to recover from sexual assault or to parent a prodigal. Uh, you, you will be comforted by those who have made it through the end of an engagement or a miscarriage. They were there like you were there, and they made it out. And here's David. David was like Israel, and he made it out. We can be comforted by this story. Now, there are some elements, those are some elements that we see looking at the book from a broad perspective. Let me be a little bit more focused here. At its most basic level, there are three main characters in the book of Samuel. And we're going to talk about all three of them in the course of time. There's Samuel, Saul, and David. Samuel was the last judge, and Saul and David were the first two kings. And Saul and David are in contrast here. They, they're, they're different from each other. In fact, here's a literary term. Saul and David. Saul is a foil for David. A foil. What does that mean? Well... Um, in literature, a foil is a character whose bad choices highlight the wisdom of the character who makes good choices. I'll give you an illustration. You all know this. You'll instantly understand this. Think about the great little literary classic, The Three Little Pigs. All right? Three little pigs, uh, they have to build new homes. And the first uh, pig builds his house out of straw. It's easy. The second pig builds his house out of sticks. It's a little harder, but not much. And the third little pig, though, uses bricks. It's hot, heavy, hard work, but he builds his house. What happens when the wolf comes? He huffs and he puffs and he blows down the house made of straw. And then he huffs and he puffs and he blows down the house made of sticks. And then he huffs and puffs and huffs and puffs, but no matter how hard he tries, he cannot blow down the house made of bricks. The first two pigs are foils for the third pig. Their foolish choices highlight the wisdom of the third little pig. Saul is a foil for David. He was ruled by his fear and not by faith. We're going to talk about fear quite a bit in this book. He was ruled by disobedience and not obedience to God. I love one of the ways that the book shows this. <laughs> in Israel, a great king is a shepherd. Shepherd is a great image for a king in Israel. Um, that's the type of leader that you want. When we first meet David, he is a shepherd. And he is in his field with his flocks. And he has killed lions and bears to, to uh, protect his sheep. What's Samuel doing the first time we meet him? He's looking for a herd of donkeys. How do you lose a donkey? They're huge. 
How can you possibly lose a herd of donkeys? And how can you be looking for them for days on end? And actually, Samuel never fi- uh, Saul never finds them. He never finds the donkeys. He's the worst shepherd ever. And he's going to be king. Oh, this is not going to be good. Uh, we're going to start with Samuel. We're going to move to Saul. And we're going to spend most of our time, though, with David, a great hero whose life ends with great sorrow. This book is really about his rise and his fall. He comes from the field to the throne. He consolidates his power. He extends the nation's borders. He starts collecting materials for the temple, and he starts to give the people genuine rest, and then his world falls apart. Samuel, the author of Samuel, likes to use um, words really well, and he does. One of the words that's repeated about David all the time, Saul's king, David's been anointed king, and David has opportunities to seize the kingdom. But he refuses. He will not seize the kingdom from Saul. He he is waiting patiently on God for Saul to die, so he will be king. He doesn't seize the kingdom. What a man of honor. Except later, when he's out uh, wandering on his porches, he looks down and he glances a woman, and the same word, he seizes her and takes her for himself. Oh, David. We have a lot to learn from this book as we talk about these three men. I want to finish, though, this orientation with the book by mentioning three of the most prominent lessons that are going to come to us from the text. All right, That's where we're going to finish this morning, this introduction. Here's uh, the first lesson. There is a difference between what we think we need and what God knows we need. There's a difference between what we think we need and what, we, what God knows we need. Saul is the king the people thought they needed. David is the king they actually needed. It's always been God's intention. We'll talk about this when we get to chapter 8. It has always been God's intention to give the people a king. The problem with the request for a king, they asked Samuel to give them a king, is they asked for it at the wrong time, we want it now, and they asked with an eye toward turning away from God. They wanted a king just like all the other nations. They did not want a king after God's own heart. In God's plan, Israel's king was supposed to be his co-regent. Israel's king was supposed to be God's adopted son, just like we read in Psalm 2 this morning. I was thinking about that this morning when uh, Dave was reading Psalm 2. I thought, it's inauguration week. We should have a scripture reading at the inauguration. Fear you leaders, kiss the son, lest God be angry with you. (laughs) That'd be an awesome scripture reading. So uh, anyway, Saul has no heart for God and the people don't care about it. Uh, They just want someone strong and someone impressive. This book is going to encourage you to ask yourself this question. Do you have the confidence to believe that God knows what you need? Do you have the confidence to believe that God knows what you need and he often knows better than you? He knows better than what you think you need. God knows better. The the circumstances and his timing, are you willing to trust him for those things? For a spouse or a job or a home? When you push and demand and manipulate, I'm I'm not trying to tell you to be passive. Some people mistake passivity for faith. That's not what I'm saying. But when you push and demand and manipulate, what do you get? You get Saul. 
and nobody wants Saul. Here's the second lesson. Beware of the great burdens by those controlled by fear and lust. Beware of the great burdens borne by those controlled by fear and lust. Saul's story is one of fear. David's is one of lust. Let's be circumspect for just a moment this morning, but think about the role that lust plays in David's life or human sexuality. There's his adulterous affair and the baby from that affair dies. His sons fight over his concubines when he dies. There's sexual assault within his, with his family. His first wife is struck barren because of her haughty attitude before the Lord. This is where David fails and where his life falls apart. This shouldn't surprise us. Physical intimacy is a, is a great gift from God. God loves happy, healthy, physical intimacy in a marriage. But it is a fragile gift. It has great potential for blessing and great potential for harm. There is not an adult in this room who has in some way not felt the effect of human sexuality run amok. Um, There are um, abusers and the abused and fornicators and the frigid and adulterers and people who love pornography and, and we're all here in our church. Here we are. It's not going to be therapy. We're not going to be in therapy when we go into 2 Samuel, but here this family just falling apart because this great gift that God has given is just, we've just trashed it so much. Now third here, third lesson. We desperately need God's anointed king. We desperately need God's anointed king. The major message of the book of Samuel is that God shepherds his people through his anointed king. At the beginning of the book, the priesthood is in ruin and there's this loose confederation of the nation. At the end of the book, the priesthood is restored and the nation is a a solid kingdom and God did this all through the king. Look what God does through his king. It's great. But if I were reading an ancient Israelite and I was reading this book, I would say to myself, oh, if David hadn't fallen... If only David had been perfect. If only David had, been, had obeyed God without fail. God did great things through him, but it still ended up in tatters. What we really need is someone like David, only better. We need a new David. We need a better David. And of course, the Lord Jesus enters the scene. He's the great son that God promised David. God had said that his son would rule forever and Jesus is the great David's greater son. He's the good shepherd who laid his life down for his sheep. He was never marred by imperfection. The only sin he ever bore was my sin and your sin when he uh, bore them on the cross. He brings to his own, to all who turn to him, life and unending victory. And over and over again, what we're going to see in the book of Samuel is how the Bible teaches us that the Lord Jesus is the new and better David. And we desperately need God's king. At the end of this series, my hope for us is that we will say, Jesus is the good shepherd. He's my good shepherd. And because of his great and precious promises, and because in him all God's promises are yes and amen, I have everything I need. There's nothing that I want for. Uh, He is the living water. He is the bread of life and sustains me in every way. He leads me by His Spirit. 
If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just and He restores our souls. When He calls us to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't need to be afraid because Jesus has already been there and He is the resurrection and the life. The table that He sets before us has empty seats for His enemies and ours. They're welcome. He showed us the way He calls us to love them because when we were yet sinners, He died for us. He anoints us by His Spirit and He blesses us over and over and over again. His goodness and mercy pursues us always. He's always with us. He promised that. And He has gone to prepare a place for us in His Father's house so that we can dwell with Him forever. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are a people about to uh, enter into this great study of your book. Lord, we are thankful to you for this word. It is true, it is sure, it is powerful. Lord, I do pray that as we read through this book that you would uh, direct our minds and our hearts along um, wise paths and, and good directions that you would bless us with careful focus, that you would help us like newborn babes to desire the pure milk that is in your word. Lord, I pray that you would give us clarity and that this book would be for us a light to our uh, path, that it would guide the steps that we take, that it would uh, correct us, teach us, train us, Father, our confidence is in the fact that you, by your Spirit, lead your people through your word, and we pray that you would do that through uh, the book of Samuel in the months that are to come. Thank you for this fine and patient congregation. Make us a hungry people, we pray together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.